Hello, Michelle Laurie here, and as promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane, and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio, or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so you know we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian True Crime Live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. It was the late 80s and um, you did not want to be catching public transport. You did not want to be caught out. If you were a different race, if you were white and in a gang, we turned the whole Melbourne into a war zone and it was our playground. And um, we bashed, stabbed, killed, burnt everything and anything that we possibly came across until we got pinched and, and it was horrific. Filmmaker Jeffrey Wright has frankly changed his story over the years on the question of how closely the plot and the characters of his breakout 1992 film Romper Stomper were based on reality. In his director's commentary for the movie's 20th anniversary DVD release, Wright states that the script was based loosely on events involving people in 10 or so neo-Nazi gangs active around Australia in the 1980s. He's at pains to specify that the idea neither sprang from his becoming aware of a young man by the name of Dane Sweetman in Melbourne, nor does the movie depict Sweetman's exploits or those of his associates. 20 years earlier, however, when the film was first released, Sweetman and several of his gang members were in the news thanks to their rather unapologetic appearances in court and in prison for their Nazi-inspired violent crimes. So the idea that the production was based on them and that Jeffrey Wright had been interviewing Sweetman while writing the script was definitely used as fuel on the publicity bonfire around the movie. 
claims that Wright even used transcripts of Sweetman's court cases as source material for the script are strengthened by moments like this in the film. Here, the gang leader, Hando, played by Russell Crowe, brandishes a tomahawk while evicting some squatters from a premises he's decided to move his gang into. We're going to stay here for a while. You guys don't want to hang around, do you? Do you? Now, I'm going to ask you nicely to leave. If I see either one of you again... I'm going to chop your legs off. In reality, Dane Sweetman was in Pentridge, serving a sentence for the Tomahawk murder of his associate David Noble. And he had, indeed, chopped off Noble's legs. But we'll get to that because our guest today was another of Dane Sweetman's close associates. He was a member of Sweetman's gang, and he was also in jail by the time the movie was released after a pretty spectacular showing in court. Andrew Martin Kirby is a reformed character, but I don't think he'd mind by saying he's still fairly newly reformed. He's only been out of jail since 2019, after a couple of false starts, so he's still very much adjusting to a lot of things like not using violence to deal with uncomfortable emotional situations. You and I have met enough former violent offenders by now to sadly not be too shocked by some of the details of Andrew's early life, as awful as they are. There just are common threads in the stories of children who grow up to become violent people, which is why we think that listening to adults who've made it out the other side is valuable. But given the recent spate of anti-Semitic incidents around Australia, and especially in Melbourne, the city that Romper Stomper was set in, and that Dane Sweetman and Andrew Kirby committed their crimes in, we think Andrew's experience in a neo-Nazi gang is particularly pertinent now. So we begin by finding out how a young Australian man joins a neo-Nazi gang. I had two working parents. I, I had a normal life. I moved around a lot, but um, I was sports mad. So me and my brother, I had a mate that I grew up with as well, Shane. We stuck together as brothers. You know, we were all sports mad and we played down the creek and we did normal things. And um, then you get to grade six and you go into high school and the bullying really, really took off. Just having to meet new friends all the time. Because you moved around a lot. Yeah, and I'm, people seem to just try and pick you apart. You know, getting taken out of one school, put into another, and then getting bullied there, and then that school communicating with the other, saying, oh, do you know old mate that's just moved over? You know, he's a dickhead or whatever. And the bullying just kept going, especially for my brother, and so I always had to fight my brother's battles. Were you handy, the two of you, with your fists, you and your brother? Uh, no, so I never fought back at first, um, so I used to just get punched up and would never fight back, and then my parents said, listen, you've got to fight back, and when I fought back, I got in trouble. So I was damned if you do, damned if you don't. Eventually, that switch flicked, and I started fighting back, but then um, it got to the stage where I was using weapons, like if I can't beat you in a fist fight, I'll be waiting for you somewhere around the corner, and that's what it got to. So I ran away from home. Um, my parents split up and um, it wasn't because of them that I ran away, but I just had enough, you know, the bullying and all this sort of shit. And so I ran away. I gave away all my sports. I lost interest in, in everything. And then, you know, when I found my way to St Kilda and met elder people in their 30s and were looking for urns and uh, I was working for the cafes doing errands and things like that as a 14-year-old, and then doing armed robberies. Yeah, because those blokes are always happy to take in a young bloke and make him feel wanted and all that, aren't they, if, if he'll do a few little jobs for them? That's right. And, you know, when you are, are immature, as I was, um, but quite capable, it was like the perfect mix. And, and off it went. The armed robbery all started. Got pinched for armed robbery and... Um, Went to boys' home. I'm in the court, in the children's court, and um, some kids ripped my pants off, tied my shoes together, and you know um, all this. And so I fought back, but I was a little bit nervous. And so when I got back to Tirana, 
I, I was placed in the cell and, and kept in the cell for a few days. So I didn't mix with anyone. So I, I'm locked in my cell. And when I needed to go to the toilet and things like that, I'd have to bang up when everyone else was locked down. And the screws would take you to the toilet, but they'd also sexually assault you and things like that. That's how they were getting away with a lot of stuff. You're getting ridiculed by other prisoners that know what's going on. And I was pissing and shitting in my cell and things like that. And getting locked in a cell with just a blanket and a sheet, that's all you had in Toronto. You didn't have no TVs or anything like that and had nothing to yeah get out and just fight. It was just like a fight club. Really just set that, that motion. Um, so you had nothing and all you had was yourself and what you were capable of and handy at and it just so happened that I uh, cultivated a uh, level of violence. It got to the stage where it was like, let me out. And when they let me out, it's like it created a beast. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it was. Absolutely. That's the way it was. And it created many beasts. It did. When did you run into Dane Sweetman? So I, I got out of Toronto. And I caught up with someone that I was in Toronto with, and he was skinhead, and um, he was knocking around with Dane. And uh, he said, "Do you want to go back to, for a barbecue? We've been going over to Dane's place." And I didn't know who he was, and I said, "Yeah, why not?" And so I went over to his his parents' place, and Dane and a few skinheads were there, and pretty much shaved my head and hooked up. Did you know anything about what being a skinhead was? You know, sort of um, philosophically. At that stage? Nothing. No. Nothing. And, you know, I dearly loved my grandfather and he fought in World War II against the Germans and had, you know, people that got killed that he knew and everything like that. He never said a word. He never said one thing to me. Your granddad didn't? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. You know, there was big headlines, neo-Nazi this, and he didn't say one word. But he just loved me continuously, supported me. So I didn't have any idea, but... As I was going through the motions and that, I started picking up bits from here and there and I started putting it together. Even though I shaved my head and I ran with them, I couldn't really say that I uh, picked up the ideology and, and things like that. So I just, me and Dane, you know, and the level of violence, um, that's what brought us together. Were you saying things and like, I'm, I'm assuming he was sort of pretty ideological. Oh, 100%. I'd go over to Danes and the skinhead music would be going and they'd be like, oi, oi, skinhead, skinhead, you know, and going through um, all the hate messages and, and, and just all that sort of stuff, saluting each other and, you know, just carrying on with the bullshit, really. Because we're talking late 80s? Mid-80s. Mid-80s. We were just talking about this a few weeks ago, actually. This was because we were talking about the Cabramatta drug scene. And so the, all this was around the time that, was the first big intake of refugees in Australia was from uh, Vietnam in, yep. in the mid-'80s, yeah. So culturally white Australia was struggling philosophically with that. What ended up happening was the area in Melbourne where that became the flashpoint was Footscray, which was our big Vietnamese neighbourhood. And during the lockdowns I remember talking to a lady for a podcast I was doing about mental health and she's an author and so we were just talking about how people were coping in lockdown. And she said to me, oh, it doesn't really worry me. It doesn't affect me because I was locked down for my entire childhood because we lived in Footscray. I was like, what do you mean? And she was saying, oh, it was so violent. Like we were under siege for my entire childhood from skinheads and other racists that my mum never let us out. We were just locked down all the time. And that was people like you. She was scared of you guys. And her mum and her parents were scared of you guys. What sort of activities, what, what sort of stuff did you get up to in those days in places like Footscray and in Chinatown? Yeah, well, it was the 80s. It was the late 80s and um, uh, the very start of 1990, you did not want to be catching public transport. You did not want to be caught out um, if you were a different race, if you were white and in a gang, anything like that. Um, we turned the whole Melbourne into a war zone and it was our playground and um we bashed, stabbed, killed, burnt everything and anything that we possibly came across until we got pinched and and it was horrific. And I'm very um, ashamed of what I've done. 
there was just no need to, to do that sort of behaviour. But when you're a young kid like that and, you, and you're not knowing who you are as a person or where you fit in or or just immature, it just bred the perfect storm and um, we just wrecked havoc. Um, we went down Chinatown and we were going into major restaurants where the Chinese were doing the gambling and we were running through, kicking their tables over, smashing everything up and these are serious people and we were just destroying their downstairs gambling things. The uh, socialist uh, offices in Melbourne, we ran through and ransacked that place, just tore it apart. When you see neo-Nazi groups like a couple of days ago in Melbourne, very openly boarding the train and intimidating people and asking people, are they Jewish? What do you feel? It's bullshit. It's disgraceful. It's disgusting that you would just purely out and intimidate people, kids, women, children, families. That's disgraceful. You don't do, you don't hold yourself, conduct yourself like that. Um, in that fashion at all, you know, and who's got the right to ask those things, you know? My immediate thought, my, my, I was wondering what if the person was Jewish? What if the person said, yes, I am? Because the person they asked said, no, no, I'm not. Apparently they were holding some kind of blue and white ribbon and they said, no, someone just gave this to me as I was getting on the train. And I thought, well, hang on. What if they said, yeah, I am? What of it? That could have been the end of their life. That, that easy it was with our group riding the trains and that and finding Asians and that and killing them and, and leaving them permanently disabled. And who gave us the right to do that, to just annihilate another human being, you know? And we're all meant to be getting along and, and come to, together as a community to go forwards in life. Why are we always um, breaking ourselves down and going backwards? Well, that's right. And as much as nobody gave anyone the right to assault you as a child in Tirana, nobody gave you the right to then pay that forward to other people. I know a lot of listeners will think that I'm letting you off the hook when I make these correlations, but I do think that if we took better care of victims in our culture, we'd have less violent offenders. And if we created less victims in our culture, we'd have less violent offenders. Who do you think these people are now, these neo-Nazis are now? Because I don't think we still have this boys' home system that we had when you were a kid, for example. So who do you think these young people are now? Where do they come from? The vulnerable, uh, impressionable, immature people that are looking for something in their life. They're looking for adventure, um, uh, things like that, that they find these people and when there's a group and there's a dictator and they're talking to their group, now this is how it's going to be, pro-white, let's wave the flag, and it becomes bigger and it becomes something that it's not. So the whites say that let's let's take back our, our land and let's take back our, our country. When they're sending these kids out to do their filthy work that they won't do themselves, these leaders. When you say that Dane Sweetman was your co-offender, you describe him that way, was this in the, the homicide? No, I wasn't uh, charged with him. I, I was actually charged with murder and then they withdrew the charges and, and I was in South Australia and they, that's how they were trying to extradite me at that stage. But For that murder, for David Noble? Yep. So, um, But then they um, found other ways to extradite me. So they withdrew the charges and charged me with other crimes, uh, killing an Asian um, on Russell train station uh, just down from Clifton Hill. He lived 16 months and then died. Well, that's hideous. Yeah, it was. It was absolutely ruthless and it was um, shameful and, and it was just... This man lived for how many? 16 months? 16 months in hospital, um, in a coma, woke up to them, just died. And um, yeah, had every operation under the sun. Um, I'd stabbed him nine times. Were you convicted of his murder after that? I, well, I wasn't uh, convicted of a homicidal offence because after 12 months and one day, um, you couldn't be charged with a homicidal offence and then someone else went on to do the same sort of crime and they changed the law. Okay. Yeah. 
So I could only be charged with uh, intentionally caused grievous bodily harm, uh, wounding with intent and things like that. God. David Noble, who Dane Sweetman eventually went down for, he killed him on Hitler's birthday. Now, they say in the media that it was in celebration of Hitler's birthday. You said it was over a can of baked beans. Yeah, well, one bloke said to another, I think he's of another race. He was a big bloke and he was acting like a fool. He's acting like a dickhead standover. This just bad behaviour and Dane just come out and just stuck the axe in his head. Right. So it was part of a celebratory sort of event? Yep, there was a party going on. And then famously at the Melbourne Supreme Court, when Dane was there for that crime, he, he pulled out a knife that he had made himself while he was in the dock. Yeah, shoved it in the dock, and I think he said, um, if I wanted to kill someone, I'd do it right now, and the judge gave him 20 years. And at that stage, I, I think I bashed the prosecutor in the court, and in the county court, while he was in the Supreme Court. You did? You bashed the prosecutor? Uh, prosecutor and the police that were in there, the police were giving me shit, and um, I jumped jumped over the dock, and and then I bashed a uh, coal fender in the dock as well. And so my life got out of, out of control. But so I go over to South Australia... I'm in jail over there, and a bloke comes up to me and says, uh, this bloke's going to cut your throat. He goes, you killed his brother with Dane Sweetman. You killed his brother over in, in Melbourne. You cut his legs off and with the axe, and he goes, his brother's in the unit. I boiled up boiling water and that, and I threw it on him, and his face fell off. Um, it was horrific. You know, it was like do or die. This is the screws put me in that situation where they put me in a unit with this bloke, with David Noble's brother. And it was a do-or-die situation. He was going to kill me, and I got there first. You know, so having to go through all that, being set up by the screws and going through the motions of um, all this bad behaviour that jail breeds, um, the screws putting you in bad situations. Me, you know, being labelled a neo-Nazi, romper-stomper comes out. The movie did make you infamous in the prison system. It came out when you were in jail and, and Dane was in jail. Yep, things like that, and then punching up the screws and, and, and fighting with the screws, they would put you in the wing with the, all Aboriginals and the gate would come over and the Aboriginals like, are, are they kidding? Are they putting him in here? And I'm like, I, I can't say anything because if I say something, I'm a dog. So I'm like, I just waltz into the fucking wing and um, I can see everyone. It's like slow motion. I can see them all starting to chatter, peel off. So I'm like, find the yard as quick as I can, go out there, get a bit of metal, sharpen it up, make a shiv, because I know in a couple of hours they're coming to my cell and they're coming armed and ready and, and that's what happened. They, they come in, they smash me over the head with this jug and tried strangling me, choking me out and that, and I have my shiv and I start stabbing my way out of it, you know. Coming up on Australian True Crime, our guest, Andrew Kirby, describes one of the most intense, self-administered prison reform programs I've ever heard of. I wouldn't have believed it if the results hadn't been sitting right in front of me. And you can read more about Andrew Kirby's jail time, especially about his earlier stints, in James Phelps's book, Australia's Most Infamous Jail, Inside the Walls of Pentridge Prison, which is available now. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You know, I got locked up in the 80s and I get out in 2019 and life's changed dramatically. And so I still like to live by those old school rules. And when you get out in 2019 and you see the ice epidemic has affected your friends, that long-term friends that you haven't seen for 20 odd years and things like that, I was horrified because uh, I don't behave like that. I mean, I do bad things out there. Well, I did previously, but I don't behave like that. You didn't always mm. cope though. I mean, you you got out a couple of other times and, and found your way back in, right? I mean, there was the, a time... Was it 2011 or something when you got out and found out that your girlfriend had been seeing some other guys while you were in? Uh, 2010, yeah. I was out a day and a half. A day and a half. I was led back to that house. I mean, if they didn't lead me back to the house where there was four blokes waiting for me, then I wouldn't have been in that predicament. But she should have just said the relationship's over. But she met me as I got out of prison. We went back to my parole address where the blokes were waiting and... As soon as one bloke said, oh, I thought you'd be bigger, that that was it. I was like, flick the switch. I thought, how dare you wreck my rehabilitation? And that made me um, flick a switch where I was that angry. Well, I, you know, I ended up stabbing old mate 18 times or something. I can take you back towards the end of my story when I'm in Supermax. And I'm so many years into Supermax in the solitary. And mind you, prior to that, I'd done umpteen million years in solitary. I went mad. I went through all sorts of phases to the point where, in my mind, I started building a village. So in my mind, I first built the house that I wanted to put my tool belt on in my mind. I dug the foundation. I cemented. I built my whole house by hand. I went on to build a car, a boat. I built the endeavor in, in my mind. I carved the wood out. I did that. I then started building a village and putting people in that village, people of substance, what I wanted to be of good nature. And say, if, if I wanted to listen to a bit of poetry in my village, I'd have a poet and I could go there and I could communicate with these really good people of good nature that all got, got along. And so I built this in my mind over about 18 odd months. I shed my skin. I built myself up from my toes to my ankles to my knees. I built myself right back up and created the person that I was that was uh, a lot more compassionate, a lot more understanding. And I, from there, I just kept on that path. And um, if I have a problem, I'll go to my village and I'll sort that problem out in my head, and then I'll, I'll take that out to the community. And that's the way that I like to live my life now. I've burnt the village down a couple of times, <laughs> but, it, but I've rebuilt it. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's amazing. I, yeah, there's not many blokes who come out mentally stronger from solitary. Hey. I didn't want to break. I didn't want the system to beat me. I really didn't. They destroyed me, and um, I didn't want them to to actually break me and beat me and the way I was getting tortured for 30 odd years through the system and I mean chained up to a to a pipe in the cell pissed on like I was in shackles chained up pissed on spat on bashed kicked then run in with a syringe bang hit me in the ass with medication that would put my body into full cramps for like 16 hours with the light on squatting shackled and zip tied 
and being tortured in that sense. And they'd have to come and give me a pill under my tongue for my body to relax again. And then they would let me just roam my cell to unwind. And that took weeks to unwind from that sort of torture. And that's what they were doing to me. And, you know, when, when that's going on, you think that you're at the end of the and end of your life, like I stuck my finger in a power point and everything like that, and it was just fortunate they turned the power off. Like, and and I thought, no, why should I be wanting to commit suicide when that's not me as a person? And I thought, no, they're not going to break me. I'll go through anything, and I did go through everything and anything, and I got out the other side oh, by the skin of my teeth. And my life was shit. Locked up in, in a cell 20, 23 hours, maybe 24 hours, whatever. No human contact, being shackled, um, having a tactical response group take me from my cell to the yard or to, to wherever I need to go, to the dentist, a full tactical response group, the jail gets shut down, all, all this sort of stuff. I got to the end of the line and I knew it. Absolutely, yeah. You pushed it to the very edge of being a violent prisoner, didn't you? Well, everything you're, you're talking about, everything you've mentioned, the only way a human being can be treated that way in Australia, in a, the Australian system, is if they are an incredibly violent prisoner. Like all the medication, all that intervention is only used on a person who is so violent that they're a threat to everybody. They're a threat to themselves, they're a threat to other prisoners, they're a threat to staff. And you pushed it all the way there. And the fact that you have come all the way back to where you are now is, I would say, almost unheard of. You know, there, there cannot be many blokes, there cannot be many human beings who've gone to the edge that you went to and come back to where you are now. Now, I can only think of one prisoner off the top of my head, and that's Russell Cox. Yeah, but he was always described as a gentleman. That's the difference, and that because that was the always the irony of his nickname, Mad Dog. So many people have said he didn't deserve that nickname, he wasn't a mad dog. Whereas you, my friend, sound like a mad dog. There it sounds like there were times in your life when you were, you could have been shot for being a mad dog, to be honest. Well, I did, well, I did get shot. Yeah, I bet. I got shot, shot, got shot through the neck. I got shot through the neck and the bullet lodged behind my heart and I jumped to my feet and I went on with it. And But I was still a family man. I was still a polite to my friends. The, the people that know me knew me as a real placid, gentle person. Okay, because you had kids, you know, all the way through, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. Yep. But um, everyone else knew me as a uh, capable, unpredictable psychopath. You've said that some of those old boys, the older crims in jail, did have a word with you and sort of said, you know, that's when you sort of made the connection with your grandfather as well, with with the philosophy that you'd been pursuing in the skinhead world and realised that it actually didn't mean anything to you. Is that right? Yep, that, that's exactly right. But, you know, in the meantime, um, here I am. I've, I'm now in a war with the prison officers um, because of the skinhead stuff. Some of them weren't tolerating it and our activities and, you know, the stabbings and the bashings that, and murders that were going on in the jail, that there was a war between me and the prison officers because H-Division screws were attending a court case. So this is Pentridge. Yep, Pentridge, they were listening to our court cases um, and things like that, or transporting us to court, the H-Division security squad, um, and listening to me bash screws and, you know, smashing them with chairs and, you know, throwing hot water and all this sort of stuff. So I'm at Pentridge and I'd be down the laundry and H-Division screws would turn up to D-Division and come and say, Kirby, right, get in the fucking office. And I'll be like, oh, and everyone be like, whoa. And so I go in the office, they'd make me sit down in the corner like a dunce. And they said, you're not getting up until you say, sir. And so I'd stay there for a couple of hours and then I'd be thinking, this is, this is going to end bad either way. So I'd say, okay, sir, can I please get up? And they say, right, get to your fucking feet. And then I'd say, sir, can you fucking hang on to this? And bang. And I'd just smash them and it'd be on and be dragged down the H Division or the BMU. And um, there's a massive war that's begun. What's a BMU? So you've got B Division. The right side is protection, um, B Annex, but the left side, the left wing, is um, the BMU prison management unit. So it's the same as H Division pretty much. And they use it to split up the dynamics between that and Jika Jika and H Division. They split up groups and dynamics and play their little games as they do the screws. And 
because I was a young kid and probably the underdog that they thought that they put me in bad situation where I bail out, but I thrived on it instead. Unfortunately, because the fear of dying drove me to do bad things to protect myself because, uh, you know, I wanted to live by that jail code. You know, I didn't want to do the walk of shame or do anything like that. So I knuckled down and done what I had to do to survive. What's the walk of shame? Well, you know, if you're walking out in the middle of a unit in front of all these prisoners to bail out to protection, that's the walk of shame. And you don't want to go down that road. It's interesting you see yourself as an underdog because I I just can't see you that way. I see you as a really frightening unit. Like, But I, I take your point about them doing things like pulling you out of your work duty in the laundry and to antagonise you, to sit you in the office and, and antagonise you and try and roll you up. That's ridiculous. But everything after that and the PMU and stuff I think is designed for blokes like you. It's like you're a you know, scary character. You are an incredibly violent prisoner at that stage, not now, obviously, but at that stage, you are an element in the in the group that's potentially dangerous. Yeah, that's right. But uh, um, well, there was a series of events, and then I get released from jail, and so I go up to live in the country where there's a prison in that country town, and. Um, I'm playing football on the outside and I'm living a normal life and the screws and the police didn't want me in the town. So the next, you know, you, you play football, you go back on the weekend, you go to the pub to support that football team and here's the police and the prison officers uh, drunk wanting to fight me. So I've glassed one of them, I've bashed the governor, i put four other police in hospital, I've got charged for, all, you know, all this stuff and... Um, you know, it's game on again, but this time it's on the outside. So the war just keeps cultivating for me. And like, I can't find any peace. I can't, I can't put my hands out and find any space because people are invading my space. When all I'm trying to do is be a, a decent person, but they want to fuck that. They really, you know, I'm, I'm coaching a basketball team under tens or whatever. Kids are loving me, having a great time. The little kids that don't get a go are getting a go. The police come down, you know, and you know he's a murderer, don't you? So everyone just turns on me. What's the tattoo situation? Because I'm just thinking you're probably not hard to spot either. Yeah, I'm, I'm covered from neck down, mm. you know. Um, I've got a full back job and whatnot. And um, I've had spot stickers all over me and um, really offensive tattoos. So I've got a lot of that uh, covered over. You know, I've still got a bit to go. It's funny because I can detach from a lot of stuff. Like I'll just snip it, cut it and move on and leave it behind me. But the problem is I can leave it behind me, but no one else can. And that's, that's the issue. Um, I'm, I'm quite really good at detaching because of the situations I've been in where I've been traumatized that I can just cut it away. But the only one thing I could never cut away was uh, being separated from my kids and things like that, or my family, and, you know, you break up with your partner or whatever because of, you know, just circumstances or whatever, and that would just set me off, set me back into the same old crowd, you know, because I go back where I'm comfortable. And back where there's no judgment and where you don't have to constantly be apologising for yourself, I suppose. Yeah, well, I've, um, I've always admitted my faults, always admitted my faults and um, what I needed to do. I was always good at helping others, helping young kids get into jobs, doing everything for everyone else, but I could never help myself. How do you ha have a relationship with your kids? Can we talk about your kids? Like how old were you when, when you had your first child and through all these phases in your life? Because I can hear that you have done so much changing basically you've done a lot of changing through your life and your kids have been around for a lot of it it seems to me so how do you at some point talk to your kids about the fact that you bashed a man who lived for 16 months and then died you know and then you you go to jail and you put in these situations where you have to mutilate a man because you know he's going to try and kill you how do you, and when, you know, how and when do you talk to your kids about your life? Doesn't, doesn't happen. 
Not ever. Life just went that far ahead and I did that much jail that my kids grew up without a father, but a high-profile father, that they constantly cop the, the flack or whatever from it, or, oh, yeah, we know your dad, and they get sick and tired of hearing it. And uh, the relationship with my kids have just, just ceased. I've just made so many mistakes in my life that I can't repair. I'm willing to repair them, and they know that. It just, just not, it doesn't happen. Oh, that's a shame. Do they all have the same mum? No. Right. So that's hard too because, yeah, they're not all um, in one sort of unit. I'm just a fuck up. No, you're not, mate. Like, no, 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 in the sense, no, in the sense that anything that could be broken, I broke. The judge gave the young kids that stabbed Tony Mockbell and the judge got up and said, listen, you're going to have uh, children to all these women. Your kids don't want to know you. Your family doesn't want to know you. This is going to happen. That's exactly what happened to me. She nailed it. She nailed it on the head and that's exactly how it is. It is. It's so hard to hear, even hearing myself say, no, you're not, mate, because it's so hard to, for me to accept for you, let alone, yeah, I can't imagine how it is for you to accept. But the message that you're sending is such an important message. There is no punishment on earth, I don't think, that anyone else could inflict upon you that it could be worse than that. Nothing. No no one can do anything to me. You could kill me and I couldn't give a shit because uh, I'm lonely, life's daunting. I don't have a connection with my family, you know, I'm on my own and it's never going to get any better. But in the positives that all this brokenness, all this shit that I've created, I can just put it out there to other people that please don't go down that road because I'm telling you, it's a heartbreak, lonely life and torturous torture. So if you're not physically getting tortured, you're mentally getting tortured. I've seen so many people commit suicide in jail for that reason. You know, people see their, their kids one day and commit suicide that week. And what's interesting to me about what you're saying is it feels like in the beginning it must feel really powerful. Like the attraction must be that it makes you feel so powerful to be literally stomping around this big city of Melbourne kicking in heads wherever you fucking feel like it. And for a person who as a little kid felt no power, everyone's picking on me, I keep getting moved around, nobody wants to be my friend, I'm nothing. And then all of a sudden I'm with this group and I I own this city. I can do whatever the fuck I like. I'm powerful. And it did get like that. And when you get powerful uh, like that um, and that reputation, I end up getting shot. Because people don't trust you. People just think, psychopath, this bloke could potentially end my life at any stage. The police are fearful. The whole world around you is fearful to the point where you reach a pinnacle, where you re reach that top, that you're going to get bumped off. And everyone that reaches the top gets bumped off. And you, you go back through history, even through the gangland stuff. Um, you get to the top, you're getting bumped off. And that's what it got to for me. And I'm the man they couldn't root, shoot or electrocute, you know. <laughs> uh, I just kept cheating death. It's going to end for me one day, whether it's peaceful or it's not. Well, that's the realisation that can only come with age, isn't it? And there's no secret to why these groups attract young people because when we're young we don't get that and when you get older you realise, oh, shit, I am actually going to die one day one way or the other and I, I don't have forever to fix the, those relationships, to find happiness, to fix all of this shit. Well, I believe that the more mistakes you make as a young child and all through that part of your life, when you get to 50 and you get older and you look back, that's the more shame and guilt that you carry. So if you can minimise those traumas and those mistakes when you're young, you're not going to hold that trauma going into later later life you're going to be more content and and that's as simple as it, it's going to be you know and that's what I, I preach to everybody if you're making mistakes now knock the shitty ones on the head we're all going to make mistakes but you know the bigger the mistake the bigger the guilt the bigger the shame you're going to carry into later on in life and that's daunting and that I'll tell you what you know that's something you just don't want to carry it's not and I'll say again there's not a lot of blokes who 
sunk as far as deep as you did, who've made it back as much as you have, that makes sense. Um, you know, you've, you're very self-aware. Somehow you found the want to climb out of literally solitary confinement in Supermax, which I still find, I just find that astounding. Um, you've had a book written about you. Yep. James Phelps. Yeah, James Phelps. He writes great books about Australian crime stories, really good books. And I was thrilled to see that he'd written a book about you. How was that process of talking to him? Was it therapeutic? Yeah, that's good. I've become pretty um, close to James yeah. and we've, you know, spent hours and hours, like, you know, hundreds of hours of recording and talking and things like that. But we still kept it minimal because I've got stuff that I, I want to put out. Okay, um, cool. But I want to keep stuff a secret, all the good juicy stuff I want to keep so that I can put it out myself because uh, only I can write my story. No one else is, can do it. I want it raw and I want it how it is. But with each stage and each thing that I that I do and all this crime and stuff that I've done, there's a message there that I want to um, add to it. So each story has a message with it. So it's not just a story and glorifying everything that I've done. It's nothing like that. There's, there is a story and a meaning to it all bit by bit by bit and how I've used all that to build up to a fin finale where I, I've used it to get out of prison and um, just go on just living a peaceful life. Yeah. To the best of my ability anyway. Yeah. You will still be accused of things, you know, you'll be accused of not repenting enough even when you say, you know, that you um, attacked an Asian, I can hear a certain section of our audience and of our community cracking the shits. The way you express yourself won't appease a lot of people. It won't, won't be enough. It won't be good enough for some people. How do you feel about copying backlash when you want to tell your story in your way? Are you ready for people to tell you you're wrong? 100%. Yeah, like, I just want to be truthful. I want to tell it for how it was at the time. I don't want to sugarcoat it. I want to play it down. I, I don't want to say, oh, our old mate slipped and fell or anything like that. You know, if, if you get stabbed or, you know, you're getting bashed or, you know, I'm fighting for my life, that's how it is and that's how I'm going to tell it. But, I mean, if that community lives a day in my shoes now and, and doesn't think that I'm sorry for what I've done or... or for the um, not seeing my family and being a try it, live like how I am today. I might come across on the outside as happy or or whatever and show this sort of emotion. You want to try living inside inside me. You want to go through the torture um, that I've went through to be able to survive torture that's illegal. You know things like that that happen in the prison system that you don't think that happens in Australia. Bullshit. There's prisoners that get absolutely ridiculed, tortured, bullied, bashed by the prison officers, set up to be killed. I mean, you just live in constant fear and you just got to, you know, if you want to survive, you got to let that fear drive you to, to win. Now, how did I come to get to jail? It's horrible. That's, that's just shitful. It's wrong. I'm not going to sit here and say sorry a thousand times. I can only say it once. I apologise for the things that I've done. I'm never going to stop paying the price for it. And it's unfortunate. It's, I was a kid. I was an immature kid who did not know what he was doing, um, that had been sexually assaulted, that had gone through all this stuff, that I was trying to figure out who I was that, and what I was was broken. And that's just how it is. And the crime stemmed off that. And I met people that, you know, that encouraged me to, do bad things. I'm not talking about day. I'm talking about after that. That led into um, knocking around with some of Australia's heaviest criminals that out there doing crime when my life fell apart because I didn't know how to put it together. And then one day I woke up and I was different. The fog cleared, and I never thought that fog would ever clear in my head. And the fog cleared, and all of a sudden I could put myself together and. Things started going forwards for me, something that never happened that I wished happened when I was a child, but it didn't. For me, it didn't happen, but I, I can't please everyone. All I can do is just um, go through with my actions today, live by my actions today, um, not by my words, not by promises, you know, or anything like that. 
just by my actions, and that's all I can do. Thank you, and good luck to our guest today, Andrew Kirby. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 9276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 